Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 441, When Barbarossa Begins, the World Will Hold Its Breath. Picking up where we left off in February 2016, as we cover the opening moves of Barbarossa, it's worth going back and remembering that in the months leading up to the start of World War II in Europe, September 1st, 1939, London and Paris did have a chance to nail down Stalin's Russia as an ally during the tension-building summer that was 1939. But, as we have seen, London and Paris sent minor officials with no signing power on a slow boat, while Hitler was willing to fly his foreign minister Ribbentrop directly to Moscow with the ability to sign a non-aggression pact. Stalin, ever the realist, made his choice. It's not that London and Paris wanted a real mutual assistance pact with Russia. They just wanted a piece of paper that would scare Hitler into staying inside his own borders, whereas Stalin wanted something more real and actionable, which he got from Berlin. Thus, it should come as no surprise that Stalin and Hitler, in the back of their minds, were open to a deal between themselves. It just needed a nudge, and that nudge was the farce that the British and the French tried to play on the Soviet leader, who was not known for enjoying jokes at his expense. And the main reason Stalin said yes was the shock that he felt as he watched, along with the world, as the mighty French army fell in just six weeks. But there was soon a twist. After France fell, the Battle of Britain got underway, and though Stalin had his newspapers, like Pravda, say nice or neutral things about Germany, as time went on, less was said about Germany at all, and grudging respect was paid to the RAF. Indeed, the tone was neutral, but the Russian papers were covering these events almost as closely as was London. And as Britain wins the battle in the air, or rather does not lose it, Hitler is now determined to finish off Russia so the island nation will have no more allies in Europe. Thus, the stage was set for Operation Barbarossa. But for Hitler and Stalin, it would be personal, it would be total, it would be cataclysmic. On June 22, 1941, Operation Barbarossa was launched. Some three million German and Axis forces left their starting points. Such an enterprise has to be organized, of course. Army Group North, led by Field Marshal Wilhelm Ritter von Lieb, would occupy the Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, but his ultimate goal was the taking of Leningrad, near the Finnish border. This thrust would cover the northern flank of Army Group Center, who had as its goal the glorious conquest of Moscow. Led by Field Marshal Moritz Albrecht Franz Friedrich von Bock, it was the oversized Army Group Center that was expected to shatter Stalin's defensive line in the Belarus area and take Smolensk. And to do this, Blitzkrieg tactics were to be used to get as far as they could, as fast as they could. And in their battles, such names as Guderian, Hoth, Kluge, and Strauss would rise to the level of hero, but eventually crash. Which leaves Army Group South, commanded by Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt. His job was to take Ukraine, capture Kiev, but his ultimate goal was to reach the Dnieper River, 
about 70 miles or 112 kilometers above the Crimea. If such a location could be reached with Leningrad and Moscow falling, well, who could possibly expect Soviet Russia to still be standing? Certainly not Hitler. But there was a rub. The plans were made, each army had an objective, and in their totality, Stalin would lose. The captured territory between the general government, formerly Poland, to just beyond Moscow, would provide Nazi Germany with foodstuffs from Ukraine and workers from all over. But in the end, the Slavic peoples were to be wiped out, as was communism, or at least its source. But what if all did not go according to plan? What if the plan failed? What if Stalin refused to recognize defeat? What if the Blitzkrieg didn't produce another quick victory? What would the plan then be? Hopefully, Berlin had to believe it would not come to that. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Of all the army groups, Lieb's Army Group North certainly confirmed Hitler's pride in national socialism. Being covered in the air by Luftflot 1, the smallest of the air units, Lieb needed his infantry and tanks to move fast and capture territory, as the Soviets had more fighters and bombers in the area, 3 to 1 in bombers, 7 to 1 in fighters, and thus overall 4 to 1. And yes, it's true that most of these planes were obsolete compared to the German models, but an unchallenged weapon is still an effective weapon. Not that it mattered, as the majority of the Soviet Air Force operating in the forward areas would be wiped out on the first day of battle. It seems that the weeks of reconnaissance flights by the Germans paid off handsomely. Just before Lieb's men launched their attack, many of them believed that this was only a feint to send a message to the British. However, that changed at 1 p.m. on June 21st, when the code word to start the attack the next day was sent out. This was not a bluff or a scare tactic. This was war. At 3.45 a.m. on June 22nd, Army Group North's artillery opened up and the shelling would last between 45 minutes and 3 hours, depending on the response from the enemy. And indeed, it took most of the Soviet artillery 45 minutes to respond. 
Their officers were too scared to shoot, as Stalin had stressed over and over that his men had better do nothing to instigate a war, which meant allowing themselves to be shelled for almost an hour before responding. Time would show that not only did the Soviets have more artillery pieces, theirs were generally better in terms of range and durability, which mattered little as hundreds, if not thousands of them, were captured or destroyed in the first 24 to 48 hours of the war. And though Lieb and Hitler did not get along, the field marshal was not cruel or conservative enough for Hitler and the Nazis in general, as his 291st Infantry Division advanced 40 miles, or 64 kilometers, on the first day, with the 8th Panzer Division covering 50 miles, or 80 kilometers, in that same time, reaching central Lithuania, the southernmost of the Baltic states, nothing but praise flowed from the general staff. As the Soviet forces that could retreated, Berlin assumed they were running pell-mell, which was not the case. Fallback points had been established, and the T-34 and the KV tanks employed should have impressed the Germans more. But one, they were in too small of groups, and two, they were not covered by infantry to help get the job done. Also, the 8th and 11th Soviet armies in the Northwestern Front, under Lieutenant General F.I. Kunetsov, were still implementing the changes put forth by Defense Commissar Marshal S.K. Timoshenko and General Zhukov. Thus, their tactics, supplies, modes of transportation, and communication techniques were still being ironed out. Side note, just eight days into the war, Kunetsov would be replaced by Marshal K.E. Voroshilov, as Stalin had lost faith in Kunetsov and other commanders on the front lines. But what he did not know, yet, was that the losses he would be responsible for would dwarf Kunetsov's mistakes. Being a dictator normally means that one has an aggressive policy in solving problems. Thus, as the Germans attacked, Stalin wanted counterattacks. He wanted men to stand and die where they were, rather than let the enemy get by them. But this is exactly what the Germans were counting on. Kunetsov's Northwest Front had 369,000 men broken into 24 divisions and it was the smallest of Stalin's fronts, but it was still formidable. And so Berlin decided to engage these forces, but in such a way that frontal attack, after moving ahead a few miles or kilometers, was a devastating diversion, but only that. Meanwhile, the Germans' flanks would be moving much faster. Why? To then cut off and encircle Soviet troops. And the more the Russians counterattacked, the better this worked out for the Axis forces. And it would happen over and over, along the entire front. To be sure, there were moments of concern for the Germans as they pushed their way through the Baltic state, but only moments. Like when, on June 25th, Soviet tanks and infantry hid and then ambushed the 1st Panzer Division's headquarters. There, General Kirchner himself had to pull out his sidearm and fight back. But mostly, the Soviets lost whatever they put in front of the Germans. On June 22nd, the Soviet 12th Mechanized Corps had 690 tanks. A week later, they were down to 50, and that number would continue to fall. On the morning of June 26th, Corps Commander General Erich von Manstein of the 56th Panzer Corps crossed into Latvia, 
the middle state of the Baltic countries. Actually, von Manstein's panzers dashed by, sleeping Soviet troops on the ground. But not to worry, German mechanized infantry would be there soon to deal with them. But it was a bit early for von Manstein to celebrate. His advancement came as a 75-mile gap opened up due to German aggression, but also to a series of Soviet mistakes. But then Kunetsov, realizing his mistake, closed the gap and thus surrounded the 56th Panzer Corps. So for the next three days, that Panzer Corps was cut off from help. That is, except from the Luftwaffe. And what they would do in those three days would greatly influence the war in the Northwestern Front in the immediate future. Having the Panzers trapped, Kunetsov had his Air Force fly 2,100 sorties against the trapped Germans, but the BF-109s of their air unit would rise up and take down at least 200 enemy tanks. And just like that, Kunetsov's trap, though unintentional, now became Lieb's trap, very much on purpose. But Kunetsov was far from done making mistakes. Mistakes that led to more drinking, and eventually to him being removed by Stalin. Marshal Timoshenko ordered Kunetsov to hold the Vina River, which empties into the sea through the city of Riga, the capital of Latvia. Overall, this section of the Vina River runs from Riga to the southeast, and if the Germans crossed here, then the northern half of that country would be relatively open, which is why Kunetsov had to hold the line at the river. But what should have been a massive battle over a river became a German route and quick advance, as Kunetsov, in trying to slow up the Germans, overthought and outmaneuvered himself. He had the 8th Army there pull back to the north, and he ordered the 11th Army in the area to also pull back, this time to the east. Thus, a hole was open, and the major defensive line was now nothing more than a doorway. And just like that, all of the planning of the Stavka, the high command of the Soviet armed forces, was out the door. The next major line was the Stalin Line, located on the Russian border with the Baltic countries, but it ran from the Gulf of Finland to the Black Sea. But again, it would be more Kunitsovian incompetence versus German fierceness that resulted in the enemy freely moving on, relatively speaking. Before the first week of July was over, German infantry had reached the Vena River at Livani, about 80 kilometers or 49 miles from Riga, again to the southeast. And this was with von Kluge's orders that the men should only walk between 3 a.m. and 8 a.m., and then again between 6 p.m. and 10 p.m., thus resting during the day's heat. This was in late June, early July. More good news, by June 25th, three days of fighting saw that Flieger Corps 1 had flown 1,100 sorties, where they had bombed 77 enemy airfields, shot down 400 enemy aircraft, and smashed another 1,100 planes while on the ground. And on that day, June 25th, there were no more nearby Soviet airfields to bomb or planes to shoot down. Thus, the pilots were forced to switch to close air ground support. No wonder that Stalin would remove Kunetsov in a few days' time. After all, he had lost 1,444 tanks and armored vehicles, almost 4,000 guns, 
90,000 men were killed, with another 35,000 captured. Kunetsov was lucky to be alive when he was removed, not from the Germans, but from Stalin. But all was not perfectly rosy on the German side, though the little problem about to be described would not come into its own until later in the war. As the panzers were covering dozens of miles a day, the infantry did impressively well also, but there was a gap forming between these metal beasts and the marching men. Thus the Soviets were starting to move men into this gap. This was too much for Lieb. He ordered Hopner's panzers to stay put for six days on the Wiener River until General Bush's men caught up with them, and in that delay, the Soviets organized as best they could. Which meant Moscow continued to raise army as tens of thousands of Soviet troops were captured almost daily. In June, there would be nine new Soviet armies. In July, there would be 13 new armies. In August, there would be 15 new armies. And some of these men would be sent to the Northwestern Front and placed just south of Leningrad or on the Luga Line. The next major line of defense would be at the Luga Line, which ran from Luga Bay, located about 50 miles west of Leningrad, and was a part of the Leningrad Oblast, or region, and it went all the way to Lake Ilmen to the southeast. Thus, the Luga Operational Group was expected to now hold the line. The Soviets had positioned the bulk of their troops in the area to the north of Leningrad to keep the Finns back, who supposedly were seeking revenge and the return of their taken territory. Now the threat was coming from the south. And again, more troops were being sent to the area. Specifically, four more rifle divisions and two tank divisions would be added to the Luga line. But there would also be two more defensive lines behind this line, and they did not stop until they reached the suburbs of Leningrad. There had been another defensive line in front of the Luga line called the Stalin line, but unlike the Maginot line, it was really a series of fortifications to attempt to force an enemy to take certain pathways, pathways that would lead them to kill zones. But after the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was signed, the guns were removed, and after the Baltic states were taken, a new line was being built there. But that line, far from finished, was easily overrun on the first day of hostilities. Also, what there was still left of the Stalin line did not pose a serious threat to the invaders. Mostly. Once Hopner's panzers and Bush's infantry were back together, Lieb sent them on again. And being able to support each other, their advances were once again impressive. That is, again until the tanks started pulling away. And yet. There had been a moment of panic at the Battle of the Stalin Line. Between Russia and Estonia is a large lake, Lake Papus, though it has other names, and below it, about 50 miles or 80 kilometers, is the city of Ostrov, which the Germans captured, mostly due to surprise, on July 4th. And getting a glimpse of the future the Soviets came back hard at Ostrov, with the Soviet 27th Army coming right at the Germans as if their lives meant nothing to them. The Germans held, but soon the entire town was on fire. Four days later, July 8th, the Red Air Force, assisting KV tanks, struck again. 
The Germans lost 100 tanks and were forced to pull back, if only to consolidate their defensive line. But the Soviets came again on July 11th, but by now those men were spent. The Panzers were able to push on, but the men of the Soviet 27th still had enough hatred in them, for that is what was pushing them to fall back near the swamps of Opachka to hide. Still, von Manstein was following them as best he could, given the terrain. Either way, Russia proper had been entered. The men of the Wehrmacht were tired, but proud. This was about to be over, just as Hitler said it would. Even better, by the time the Russians were retreating, the Luftwaffe had already taken out another 140 enemy tanks and another 112 planes, all kinds. By July 10th, the Red Air Force in this area was down to only 102 planes, and they had started the war with 1,142. And what was happening in the north was also happening in the south and in the center. Russia was being peeled like an onion, with its first echelon of defense being stripped away. But Stalin had many more men and weapons to draw upon, more than Hitler could imagine. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I would just like to say hi to some members and thank some people and uh, say hi to some people who sent a nice email. Let's see here. Members. Um, Friedrich Leon Hartsberger from Austria. Thank you, Friedrich. Um, and then my favorite, Brett P. Barnes from Mildura, Victoria, Australia. I'm sure I butchered that. Uh, let's see here. Um, Barnsey. So I'm sorry about that. But I've, So this guy, Brett, my new best friend, he donated, he became a member, and he sent me a very nice email about him working in the garden while he listens to me. And that ladies and gentlemen, is as close as I want to come to labor. No, that's not true. I work in my yard all the time. So, so Brett, thank you very much for the lovely email. I appreciate it very much. Um, as far as donations, let's see, there was Gregory Brown. I don't know why I hesitated. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that, Gregory. And Mark Stanion. So I think Mark's donated before. So if that's true, doubly. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I appreciate it very much. So as you can tell, we are now back to Russia. I will do um, some catching up. And again, just a couple, give me a couple of episodes to bring the army groups back to where they were. I think we'd gotten them to like February of 1942. But I, I, I need to, for my own sanity and for continuity, bring them back up to that, and then we can go back into minute detail. As you could probably tell, I'm doing very high level, at least with this episode. So I'll do that with those, and then we will drill down, and we will get in the mud with the Soviets and the Germans and their allies, and um, we will see how this plays out. Take care, everyone.